Let me have a prayer with you, Heavenly Father. May the words that come out of this mouth and those who preach and teach throughout this world, may they be acceptable in your sight as you have composed the meditation that is spoken. And for those who watch in the sanctuaries and homes and gymnasiums and for so many online, may their meditations be acceptable in your sight unhindered by the thoughts that course through the mind as we seek to worship, made clear path by your Spirit, so that your word might be heard and your promises effective in our lives. In our Savior's name, amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But before I share verse 15, I have to share with you a little bit about this individual who is mentioned strongly in the 15th verse of Acts chapter 9. His name is Saul, and this is what is written about him. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. He actually went to the high priest Caiaphas, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any Christians there, he might have the high priest correct right to capture those Christians, be they men or women, and take them back as prisoners to Jerusalem to be put on trial before the Sanhedrin. And as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul in his ignorance said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up, Saul, go into Damascus, and you will be told what you must do. Saul is blind when he goes into Damascus. It is arranged by God that he meet an individual named Ananias. Ananias is terrified to meet Saul because he knows that Saul has come to the city to capture Christians. And this is what the Lord said to Ananias. Go to this man, do not be afraid, for Saul is my chosen instrument. He will carry my name before three groups of people. He'll carry my name before the Gentiles, despised as they are by the Jews. Secondly, he will carry my name to the kings and authorities who reign over the Gentiles. Because if the gospel can come to the kings and authorities... There will be thousands of people who might hear my word. And thirdly, he will be sent to the people of Israel, to the Jews themselves. I will show him what he will accomplish. Saul is a masterpiece created by God. He comes out of his mother's womb But any human being, including Saul, is a masterpiece of God. The Bible says we rank higher than the angels. Saul, the masterpiece of God, was invaded by a spirit of great hatred and anger. The most intelligent of men he studies under Gamaliel, who theologians say was the greatest rabbi of the entire first century. Studies under him becomes one of his top students. 
and then filled with a hatred and rage toward another people that lived on this earth, namely those who bore the name Christian. He thought that he, this vessel of God, he thought his purpose was to extinguish them. If he could be the one who brought to an end the life of the last Christian on this earth, he thought he would be serving God's highest good. This masterpiece of God was on his way to Damascus to round up these Christians, and then God struck in full force. It does not take God much time when God's light shines upon an individual and says to them, your life will no longer be ruled by hatred and anger toward another person on this earth. Your life will be transformed because my spirit is going to come into that life and you will be changed. What better sermon to preach so early a month into a new year than a story about a man whom God wrapped his mighty creative arms around and recreated. This small man, the legend says that he was four foot ten inches tall. Legend says he had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that when he wrote the epistles, he couldn't write them. Fingers true crippled, he had a secretary that wrote them. Tradition says that he had very poor eyes, constantly diseased. And some suppose that when he talks about the affliction that he asked God to remove, it pertained to those eyes. But the worst thing about Saul was indeed the hatred and the anger that motivated him. We know that at least one individual, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Saul stood there holding the coats of those who were stoning him to death, and the Bible says he assented to the murder of Stephen. And one supposes that happened many, many times in Saul's life. What better story to share so early in the year than God wrapping his arms around this individual and turning him into the mightiest vessel that the kingdom of God perhaps has ever seen. Why not a sermon about a man who literally was shaped by God into a vessel that seemed best to him? Jeremiah 18.4. Jeremiah writes, The pot became marred in the potter's hands, and God had to reshape it into a vessel that seemed best to him. So he did with Saul. So he did with King David, so he did with Simon Peter, so he did with the prophet Isaiah, so he did with Abraham, so he did with Moses. How about you? First 31 days, pretty decent? Saintly? Has it all been saintly for you, uh, the first 31 days? Not a single ill thought, not a single bad word coming out of your mouth, uh, not a single bad deed. Have you had a perfect 31 days? Your goal was to live close to God. Your goal was to help other people, except when you saw your neighbor next door couldn't get out of his drive this morning. You thought, do I stay warm inside or do I go help him? We'll omit that because it's a snowstorm after all. Has the first 31 days been pretty good for you? It's been pretty good. Or have you fallen into the category of Martin Luther himself who said, daily I sin much. January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, the 10th, 11th, 12th, and the 30th and the 35th, I daily sin much. 
if your first 31 days have not been perfect, if fear has controlled any aspect of these 31 days, if worry, if hatred, if anger, if jealousy, if narcissism, if any of that has controlled your first 31 days, then this isn't a bad sermon to talk about God wrapping his arms around individuals and reshaping them, if needs be, daily into a vessel as seems best to him. Not a bad thing. If you love art, you go to the Art Museum in Chicago and you stand there and you look at all these masterpieces. As you're there, you see a gentleman standing in front of a picture, and you go on your way, you glance for 10 seconds at a picture, you move on to the next, to the next, to the next, and then you come back, and 45 minutes later, this guy is still standing there with tears in his eyes as he's looking at this painting. He sees something that you don't. His spirit feels something that you don't. He looks at this masterpiece, and he cannot believe that a human being could paint this scene. If you love opera, you go to the opera, it lasts for two and a half hours. Others who are not into it as much as you are, they keep looking at their watches. When's this going to be over? When can I leave? But you're sitting there enraptured. And after two and a half hours have gone by, you sit and say, I wish this could go on for another four or five hours. I couldn't get enough of this. And you are in awe of the masterpiece that has been presented by the one who has written that opera. You can't believe a human being could do this. If you love sports, as do I, you watch a Hall of Fame player in any sports, and you are in awe. They are playing with other professionals. This is the top echelon of those who are in that field. And yet when you have a superstar... They make everyone else look like high school players. You sit and cannot believe that a human being could be so much better than someone else who professionally plays at sports. Masterpieces. There are 7.7 billion masterpieces on this earth. They're called human beings. And my masterpieces become marred all the time. Some are bold enough to confess it like Luther. Others say, compared to everyone else in the world, man, I'm a saint. My guardian angel doesn't have to work very hard, not for me. The masterpieces known as you and I, they become marred. On January the 1st, you had already become marred. And on January the 1st, you already needed the blood coming off that cross from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on January 1st, he's already showering you. He's already dusted you off. He's already taken the impurity that stained the day, not only your life, but the life of someone else who's around you. He's already taken that impurity. He's removed it. He's reshaped the vessel. David in Psalm 23 wasn't talking about something that happens every decade. He wasn't talking about something that happens once a year. He's talking about something that could happen every single day. The Good Shepherd, every single day he can make brown pastures turn green. 
And every single day he can take raging waters and make them still. And every single day, morning, afternoon, evening, middle of the night, he can restore peace to one's soul. King David was a masterpiece of God. Bible says, 1 Kings 15, 5, he did that which was right in God's sight every day of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Second Samuel, he has seven wives. He's looking down, sees Bathsheba, has an affair with her, she become pregnant. Uh, he figures in order to cover his tracks that he'll bring Uriah home. Uriah comes home, but he won't go in and see his wife, goes back out into the field, And David decides that he's going to have to murder Uriah to cover his tracks. The prophet Nathan comes to him, confronts him. David is mortified, not because he's been caught, but he's mortified because he's a godly man and he has done this horrible wrong. Nathan says to him, you will not die. God has forgiven your sin. And then David says in Psalm 51... If I have to live, God, cannot live like this. My heart is so dark. My heart is so anguished. I've smeared your name, God. I've smeared my family's name. I've smeared my name. I can't stand to look at myself in the mirror. You have to do something, God. And God takes the masterpiece, David, who has been besmirched by so great a sin. And David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a right spirit, O God. Bring back to me the joy of salvation I once had. And what does God do? He recreates. Wow. Yeah. They can't hear that online. You and I can hear that. What does God do? He recreates. He takes David's heart, and by the time he reshapes it, David, as I said last week, he is sent forth. He's sent forth. God doesn't say to David, you're under probation for six months. You're under house arrest. I don't want you to leave the palace. We've got to redoctrinate you. He doesn't say that to David. He says, you're cleansed. Move forward. He doesn't say to Simon Peter, I'm going to shut you up in a monastery for a year's time, and then I'm going to revisit you, and if you truly are a changed man, then I'm going to send you out to feed my lambs. He doesn't say that. He says to David immediately, go forth and, cha- and feed my lambs. What about you and me? He says the same thing. He says, when you confess your sin, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, blessed is the man whose transgressions are covered. When you confess the sin of December 2020, when you confess the sin of August 2018, when you confess the sin you committed 30 years ago, you do not have to carry it to the deathbed and confess it to some priest or pastor just before you die. You bring that sin to him. That's why the blood was shed And God reshapes the vessel, says, get on out there. You don't say, how how long before you can use me, God? He says, get on out there and serve me. David asked God to invade him. And God did. 
Samson is standing there. He's been blind for seven or eight years, standing there at the temple of Dagon. They brought him there. They're going to torture him a little bit more. They're going to mock him a little bit more. And uh, Samson, as he stands between those two pillars, 3,000 heathens, idol worshipers there, he says to God, visit me one more time, God. I don't know if he hadn't prayed to him in seven or eight years, but he said, visit me one more time, God. And God came and visited him and gave him the strength, pushes apart those pillars, and the whole temple of Dagon comes crashing down. Sometimes people ask God to come. When the prodigal son is fighting off the pigs for that last bit of corn cob, I'm supposing when he's thinking about his father back home that he should try and get to, I think uh, that he's asked God to come, and God does. I don't know about Jonah in the belly of the wheel. I'm sure after three days he was saying, God, would you invade me one more time? Would you give me one more chance? And out he comes out of the belly of the whale. And this man in the hands of the masterpiece of God, he goes and preaches to those in Nineveh. Sometimes God is requested, sometimes he isn't. Was Saul hungry? No. Was Saul thirsty? No, my goodness gracious, no. Was he naked? No. Was he in prison? No. Saul said, I'm the best of the best. Finished first in my class. All the Pharisees, all the Sanhedrin looks up to me. Caiaphas looks up to me. I'm the great one. I'm hunting down these Christians. Maybe he realized that hatred shouldn't fill his life, but it didn't matter. He was doing his job. He certainly wasn't praying to God, come and knock me down on the road to Damascus. Come and visit me. God came anyway. Woman at Sychar's well, five husbands living with number six. She didn't go to the well that day praying, God, make something happen. Something, I got a big void in my... She wasn't praying that. But Jesus was sitting there by the well with his legs crossed. And when she came, she came straight into God. How about those listening online? Any one of you? The young man who I came to know about a month ago listening online, actually visit with him in person, goes out to Arizona, becomes deathly ill. He's only 32 years of age. Calls me from the hospital. Says, Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know if I'm going to make it. Where does he come to the faith? How is the faith strengthened? By listening to a service out of this place. And uh, two months earlier, he wouldn't have been asking for prayer. Two months earlier, there wasn't any God who was going to help him out of his illness. But now he had something. When the illness came, now he had something. Listening online, those here, do you have a hunger? Do you have a thirst? Your bank account hadn't done it for you. The summer home that you built, bought last year that you never get to see down in Florida because of COVID, that hasn't done it for you. You bought the new car on January 1st, picked you up for about 48 hours, and then it was old, old news. Are you hungry for them online? 
Are you thirsty for something? Are you naked because you don't have something? Are you sick? Are you in some sort of prison because you don't have something? Then he comes. You don't have to ask a pastor to write a prayer up for you. You just say, Lord, the void, can you do something? If you live in him, then you'll live for him. If you dive into the depths of his word and his promises, you'll live in him and then you'll live for him. A couple of people said, as I watch online, I love it when you hold up the Bible. If you dive into him, and he lives in you, then his kingdom will be part of your life and you'll live for that kingdom. What are you looking for when you read his word? You're looking for his promises. You go to a doctor and you hang on every word that he says, and if the doctor promises something to you, I mean, it's just a life-changing word that comes from that doctor. If a... Lawyer promises you something, you got a little bit of trouble. Lawyer promises you something, you hang on to that word as gospel truth. We're not talking about lawyers, accountants, or doctors uh, promising you things. We're talking about God promising you things. If these first 31 days have been invaded by fear, he promises you 365 times. Get rid of the fear. If you're one of the 13 families in the last six weeks that have buried loved ones, and if you're Ron Hockstead, whose brother just died yesterday, and you got a funeral coming up this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, if you're someone who the first 31 days, you don't really even know what the days have brought because the grief has been so overwhelming, your husband died, your wife died, your mom, dad, your died, dad died, He's promised you 153 times there is life after this life. If you struggle over some sin, wondering whether you're going to get caught or not, counting the days that have gone by, you know, the police haven't come yet, police haven't come yet, police haven't come yet, maybe I'm going to escape this, that terror that exists, that shame and that guilt that exists. He's promised you, blessed is a man whose sins are forgiven whose transgressions are removed as if they never were. You dive into his promises. You live in him, and then you'll live for him. Closing words. The kingdom you dwell in will not change if he comes into your kingdom. But his kingdom will be part of your kingdom. You'll never be in my kingdom. You won't be sitting there on Wednesday mornings from 9 to noon uh, writing a sermon. You won't be going with me to a hospital or to a nursing home or to a private residence while someone is dying and you're praying over them and you're speaking to the family. You'll never be part of that kingdom. When I go to L.A. Fitness and I see the people that are there, and there are so many hungry and thirsty people there, 
you're not part of that kingdom of mine. But I'm not part of your kingdom. Your kingdom is your senior year at Lincoln Way East. Your kingdom is a metro train that you still ride even though COVID has removed most people that were there. Your kingdom is the neighborhood you live in. The neighbor trying to shovel out his car this morning. Your kingdom is the family that you've married into with all the strange people that are there. Your kingdom is where you work. It's the club you belong to. It's the football team. It's the Philadelphia Eagles. Your kingdom is where you are. And when you dive into the depths of his word and promises, his kingdom becomes part of your kingdom. And your kingdom forever changes. Jesus once said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see justice, mercy, and humility coming out of you and then give thanks to God that you are in their life at that moment. He didn't say, Let your darkness shine before men that they can see your hatred and anger and your shame and your guilt and, and your fear and your worry. He didn't say, Let your darkness shine before men so that you chase them away from you And from me, he said, let your light so shine. And how do we get rid of the darkness? God, the master artist, grabs hold of every single life who desires. And he works his changes. Well spoken, Acts 9. Ananias When he touched Saul, the scales fell off his eyes. And the Bible said he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the paintbrush of God upon his children. In our Savior's name, amen. Heavenly Father, why are there so many stories in the Bible? And why is it so often that the dark things of people's lives are brought forth in the Bible? Why does God throw them under the bus? So that we can see in their lives and in our lives that by the time God has finished his work, in the blink of an eye, he can bring faith to the thief on the cross. In the blink of an eye, he can change the great murder of Christians into one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. That's what God can do. And when he has done his work upon us on a daily basis, may we at the close of the day say, to God be the glory for what he has done yet again. To God be the glory in his powerful name. Amen.